I'm going to put a muzzle on you both. Um, <laughs> I knew this topic would be fun. I did not realize the floodgates that it opened. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we assign you homework and hopefully make it just as fun as when you did homework in high school and college, possibly even a little bit more fun. I'm one of your two fellow co-hosts, uh, Pete Romberg, and today I am all about the World Cup. Uh, Morocco, they were my scrappy underdog pick for Group B, and then they scored an own goal against Iran in stoppage time, so we're going to take them out back and shoot them like old Geller. Um... That's my World Cup synopsis for today, Friday, June 15th. With me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Martha Sullivan, and I'm afraid I have no clever uh, title for myself this week uh, because my brain is a little bit Swiss cheese from uh, illness recovery. So, I'm glad you're well enough to be (laughs) recording today. Me too. You can call me a formerly quarantined co-host. With us, once again, is uh, Martin Hagman. My Yay! Hello! I am finally reaping the benefits of recent unemployment. Um, So I am... Fun employment. Fun employment. There we go. Because what's up? Wait. Like, actually, or are you just on summer va- summer vacation? Uh, well, I began summer vacation with no intent to return to school, so... Oh! And, and what is your next move? This is a thing highly relevant to Martha. <laughs> that is true. Um, I will start to look for librarian jobs. I just put in my Hooray! first application to a real grown-up librarian job, so yay! Yeah. Congratulations! Thank you. And good luck! Thank you. Knock wood. <laughs> right. Uh, so today we are talking about Shakespeare, let's call it reimaginings. We're not talking about proper adaptations. We're not talking about your onion headline of bold and innovative director casts Hamlet as a 16th century Denmark play is setting. Uh, we're talking about full and proper reimaginings, but using the Bard's story ideas. However, rebooting the bard. Rebooting the bard. Oh God, that's so good. Mmm. Yeah, way better. Um, You're welcome. Cool. Where were you 30 minutes ago when I was typing out the title? Um, On cold medication. Good. Uh, However, before we get into rebooting the bard, um, as always, we're going to share with you, our listeners, our pop culture credentials. This is the thing, as you well know. The media that we have consumed most recently, not edited for guilty pleasure factor. Martha, let's start with you. So I constantly consider asking you, Pete, if you would like to reimagine this segment, because frequently I find myself wanting to talk about something that is not the last thing that I consumed. Mm -hmm. What I want to talk about is how I was uh, emotionally compromised by Coco yesterday. Um, What I am actually obligated to talk to you about is this completely charming young adult, uh, like fluffy summer romance novel that I'm reading right now called 
uh, The Summer of Jordi Perez and the Best Burger in Los Angeles by Amy Spaulding. So the main character is Abby, who is a plus-sized fashion blogger teen who uh, starts a new internship, uh, gets a crush on her co-worker, and also is helping another dude uh, find the best burger in Los Angeles for an app development project that he's working on. Uh, but the point of this book is that it is thoroughly charming. Abby describes a lot of very cute clothing that so far have sent me to Google like 17 times to see if I can find a real-life version of the clothing that she's talking about. <laughs> uh, because the writing is so effective that I'm always like, that sound, she looks, she sounds like she looks cute in lemon printed shorts. Would I look cute in lemon printed shorts? Yes. And then I have to check them out yes, and will. see. <laughs> this is the part where if we let this happen, you and Martin would go down a Lulu Road uh, rabbit hole. Okay, so the thing is that I think that any clothing that is printed with fruit is automatically adorable. Uh, so is, now we're, we're basically in countdown until I purchase uh, some kind of shorts that are printed with, like, lemons or pineapples or some such. Uh, uh, I just bought a lemon-printed dress for our rehearsal <gasps> dinner, and I'm not mad yes. about it. Yes. <laughs> so, girl, I feel you. I just bought a dress that's got, like, um, palm fronds on it. I'm very into mm. summer patterns, and this book is not helping, basically. Or it is helping, just in a different way. It's not helping my budget <laughs> yeah. that I'm on. Precisely. Mara, we're going to go to you next for the Pop Culture Credentials. All right. Well, as I am, as previously stated, fun employed, I spent the majority of my day watching the new series season of Queer Eye on Netflix, I'm not mad about it. It's a good way to spend the day. So I am a queer eye um, uninitiated, I guess. I have never watched any of it. Um, But I've heard nothing but good things about this new season. I mean, the previous season is also wonderful. Um, 10 out of 10, highly recommend. Um, I think it does a good job of both navigating all the ways in which these, and they call them clients, in which these clients can better themselves and better them better their lives while also being very grounded in what do you want out of your life. It's never as they come in and are like, you need to do this. So like, okay, well, what do you want? So I will say that for one. I think for two that it's, I think probably the most earnest rendition of the, like, building bridges across huge political and cultural and religious divides that exist in our country that I've seen. Uh-huh. And and not in a way that feels fabricated, but in a way that feels very authentic. Um, so, for example, one of the episodes in the first season one of the the fab five who is african-american is pulled over fake pulled over by the best friend of their client who is a cop and it actually starts this really illuminating conversation between the two of them about police brutality wait he's fake pulled over yeah like the best friend is like oh these are the fab five here for my friends i'm gonna pretend to pull them over so i can say hi 
And all of these guys are on edge. Like, one of them reaches out his phone and points the camera right at the window to be like, all right, I'm going to see what happens. And later on in the episode, they actually have a conversation about it, and it, it ends up being very fruitful. And the cop is like, I am so sorry. I did not realize. Like, I really apologize. And... um yeah, so like I said, I think it I think it has been the most authentic bridging of all these divides and any sort of pop culture that I have seen. Cool. It sounds like it's doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, my pop culture credential is... Um, so Weird Al, I want him to be friend of the show, uh, <laughs> <laughs> recently concluded his ill-advised something 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 many other adjectives self-indulgent tour where he played his non-parody songs and apparently every single night of this tour he did a straight-up cover of a different song there were 77 shows on this tour so there are 77 different and unique weird al cover songs uh like not parody but straight actual covers and there is a 22 minute smash cut on youtube that weird al posted of bits of him covering all 77 of these songs so uh, if you want to listen to weird Al play every single song that you're like i love this song um and he's also a really good like he's a good singer regardless his band is a good band regardless he does great talking heads and the who and the beatles and elvis and smoke on the water uh and like Freebird. <laughs> um he runs the guy uh, all-star uh, by Smash Mouth. He runs the gamut. Uh, it's fantastic across the board. I, I do kind of enjoy uh, the notion of a musician doing a tour that is just totally... These are songs that I enjoy. Right. The, the tour was a I know what you like. This is not that tour. This is what I like. I will say I did see him perform the tour that everyone does like of his parody songs and he might be no offense to P.J. Barnum, but he might be the greatest showman. Like, <laughs> that set no was impeccable. Okay, yeah, I'm more worried about Hugh Jackman than P.J. Barnum, um, which I did finally cave in by that movie. I don't know if I told you that, but that was going to happen. Checks out. <laughs> I love the soundtrack because I couldn't not it's do so that. It's so good. <laughs> It's always a good episode I, when there's both Martha and Marin because the interests, the Venn diagram is very close to a circle. And then there's weird outliers where it's not. But, like, in this case, off, I know it's a circle. Off air, Marin, we should talk about that movie sometime. Oh, because absolutely. I'm both obsessed with it and also pretty mad about it. <laughs> it's, I think it goes firmly in the category of problematic fave. Uh, incredibly, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, All right, Billy well, Shakes. That, yeah, that seems like a good transition to our Shakespeare reboot, our, our rebooting the bard, as Martha so well put it. Um, I'm a genius. Yes. <laughs> Although I did very much enjoy the Billy Shakes that just happened. <laughs> yeah. Billy Shakes is great. He wrote some good stuff. Um, so we're going to be looking at why are his stories, why are Billy Shakes' stories so uh, enduring? Um... How does the story change when it gets adapted to a new setting? And not just, like, in the stupid, like, well, obviously this is different, but, like, what works and what doesn't work um, in these in these reimaginings, in these reboots? Um, 
we're going to drill down very specifically into both uh, two, two of our homework assignments had some gender swaps happening between the original and the reimagining. So we're going to kind of look at like what changed and what worked there and what like what the impact was of swapping some of the genders there. Um, and then we, if we have time, we might explore the idea of like what's lost when we translate just the story, but not the language. Um, so that's sort of signposting ahead. But honestly, I kind of feel like this might just be a nice free-form conversation. Cards on the table, we're all big Shakespeare nerds. Um, so we might go down some Shakespeare rabbit holes. Hopefully not, but we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what we end up fighting about. <laughs> yeah, so am I. Um, so that being said, does anyone want to go first? I almost feel like it makes the most sense to start with Ron, because while it's not a straightforward adaptation, it feels the most like one. Ron should either be first or last, so I'm happy going first. Yeah, let's do Ron first. Cool. Um, so I assigned Ron the 1985 Kurosawa film. Um, it, As Martha just said, it is the most straightforward adaptation. Um, it is set in... What do we say? Warring States era Japan? Yeah. Um, yeah, before the Tokugawa Shogunate. So so Martin and I watched this a couple nights ago with my brother Mark, who has also been on the podcast, because I said, hey, we're, we have to watch Ron for the podcast. And he was like, I want to watch Ron. Um, <laughs> also, I'm doing a good job saying Ron and not Ran. Um, just That's posting. correct. I'm signposting that, so when eventually I do start saying Ran, uh, whatever. Um Ron is King Lear. The changes are that we get rid of the Edgar Edmund side plot, which I'm not opposed to getting rid of because it was always the weakest part. And um, we change the daughters of Lear into the sons of Hideotora Ichimoji, Ichimonji, um, a powerful warlord in Japan who is aging and divides his kingdom into his amongst his three sons the youngest of whom is too straightforward and tells it like it is, and therefore gets banished. Um, and then it turns out that his two elder sons conspire against him, partly because they're very, uh, at least the eldest son's wife is uh, deeply opposed to the uh, the Ichimonji clan, clan uh, but also he killed a lot of people in his rise to power, so lots of people have it out against him. Um, it's a tragedy. Everyone ends up dead at the end. Uh, and it's a three-hour, gorgeous, slow, shot-on-location Kurosawa film. It is apparently the most expensive Kurosawa film. That does not surprise me at all. It was one of his... I thought it was his last. Apparently, he had, like, three other films afterwards. It was his last, quote-unquote, epic. Yeah, it was definitely the, like, I'm Kurosawa, I'm gonna make a movie, I have all of the money. And it shows in a good way. What do you guys think? Like, no, like I, I chose this for uh, some very specific reasons. First, because I wanted to watch Kurosawa. Uh, second, because I wanted to talk about the gender swapping of the daughters to the sons. And third, because I wanted to talk about translating uh, Shakespeare not just like into the present day, but into an entirely different culture. In this case, feudal Japan. Um, the other two homeworks were like translations into basically present day. Well, and also you just really like King Lear. I also love King Lear. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Shakespeare really? plays. I love King Lear. I was going to say, can you unpack that for me for a little bit? Because I have I appreciate Lear the more that, like, every time I read Lear, I 
or see it performed, I appreciate it a little bit more, but I would never have called it one of my favorites. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Yes, yes, and I'm, I'm glad you asked because I actually have a really strong answer. Um, except for I'm blanking on his name. Who did, Mar <laughs> Martha, who did you have for AP English in high school? Um, Gevinson. Nope, dang. Uh... Tavi Givenson's dad. Yeah, for any yeah, yeah, yeah. Internet yeah, like, people out there. Hopefully, friend of the show, Tavi Givenson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she has no idea who we are. <laughs> right, so she could be a friend. We don't know. Um, no, Lovis. Um, I had, oh, I had him for freshman English. There we go. I knew you had him at some point. Um, so I, which I, had, I think actually is when we read King Lear, which I have feelings English. about making freshmen read King Lear, but Ooh, that's different. I'm sorry. Um, I read. Romeo and Juliet in freshman year because obviously. Um, so did we. But you also read Lear? Yeah. All right. I love Lovis, but that was him coasting because that's what I read in AP English with him. Um, so uh, I, I probably love King Lear because that was the first Shakespeare. Like I'd read, um, I'd read Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet and uh, Merchant of Venice um, before that. But Lear was the first one that like, as I was reading it, the language grabbed me. Um, like, I wasn't just reading for the plot. I was reading for enjoying the language. Um, so, like, I, I definitely love the plot, and I've always loved the plot, except for the Edmund Edgar subplot. I don't care that much about that. But, like, I had a very strong positive opinion about it in AP English, and then I've seen it, like, three or four times since then, and I've enjoyed every single production I've seen because I love the language and I enjoy the plot. So what is it about the story particularly that speaks to you? I don't know. I, it, it might just be like the idea, like I do like the idea of like, I am a, like, the, the whole intro scene basically of like, I'm Lear and I'm going to divide my kingdom amongst my three daughters. Tell me how great I am, daughters. And then two of them are like, you're the best. And the third one's like, I like you as much as I should, but I'm not going to, like, kowtow to you. And he's like, I hate you, you're disowned, bye, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. Um, there's, like, there's so much built into that on, like, a psychological level. I'm delightfully fascinated by it. Um, this tends to be a play that I associate... It's my dad's favorite, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. just subject-wise, it's one that I associate more with, like, old people <laughs> liking it. <laughs> like, well, like, because it's it is, a lot about aging. Yeah, it's a story that's about aging and losing touch with, like, you, the pre, with the next generation of people. And, like, the short-sightedness that can come with, um, like, not, like, becoming obsolete, uh, which are all, like viciously relevant but mostly for old people well, and also like in like speaking of old people in the right hands this could be a play about alzheimer's honestly like you could or like like losing one's touch with reality as one ages like that's an easy and that comes very very strongly in ron where like the makeup is like going crazy on on um hideotora um well and it in Ron, that's an interesting point to make because in Ron, Hiditora is much more explicitly at fault for a lot of the things that happen in the in the yes. film. Yes. And he loses touch with that 
like that's what he is losing touch with. So by the end, like like when he doesn't understand what's happening, it's not just that he doesn't understand that his children have betrayed him. It's also that he doesn't understand that it's because of what he did. That was one thing I was saying as we were watching it is that like in in Lear, there's the lines about like your retinue is causing so much trouble, but that's all off stage. So if you don't stage it, it could just be like Goneril or Regan saying that. When it's, it's not really Regan. true, um, Regan, and Regan. also, yeah. um, and in... also, I think that that's pretty explicit. Actually, that that's just an excuse that they're using. Right. Whereas in this, it's like no, his retinue is causing trouble. They definitely give him far more shades of gray. Like I feel like in the text of Lear, Lear is this like fuzzy old grandma figure who like oh i'm so great and i'm such a good king he just wants to retire and hang out in his kids castles and he just like yeah he wants to have chilled time with his kiddos and in this it's like i'm this badass warlord and i have been fighting up to this day and i just decided i don't want to fight anymore but whoops by the way i made all these people angry and they're gonna come after me yeah so there's two things that I really want to dig into for this one. Um, the first, in relation to what we were just talking about, um, I didn't find the quote because the quote comes from a, a documentary, um, but I did read the Wikipedia article that talks about this movie. And in it, they cite a Kurosawa quote where he says that he was concerned that Shakespeare gave Shakespeare didn't give his characters enough of a past, and it was really important to him that all of the characters in his version have huh. a history. Huh. So, I think it is interesting that he the history he chooses to give to these characters is like does so directly put um, Hidetora in. Like, it does pin the blame on Hidetora. Right, because the past he chooses to give all the characters is Hidetora beat their families in battle, massacred or blinded them, and then forced them to marry his sons. Right, but that's a that's a story choice. Yeah, totally. Like, that's a story choice that he makes, and totally. I just, I think it's interesting that he does that. Well, and I think it's a natural consequence, though, of him setting it in that time period. I think that you couldn't have someone who is the equivalent power of Lear in warring states Japan who hadn't committed massacres. Um, so I think part of that is the context in which he's putting him in. Sure. Hmm. The other thing that I want to take a dive into is this question of gender flipping the characters. Mm-hmm. Because while, yes, he does he does give his version... He does give Hidetora sons instead of daughters. But it's still the wife of one of the sons who ends up being... Who like, ends up taking on, like, the same role as the daughters from Lear. Like, it's like the, um, the oldest... Yeah, because yeah, I'm trying to remember, called... one of the husbands in Lear, because there's Duke of Albany and Duke of Cornwall, and one of them, like, has a last-minute change of heart. I think that was Albany. But the other one is, like, all in. <laughs> and... Yeah. So, I so mean, it's... I think he was trying to equivocate that. But, yeah, it's interesting that he made that choice. So in in some ways, like the the main story is still kind of preserved in that 
it is a woman who is still kind of the um, instigator, which is not to say that his sons don't behave very badly in the beginning of the story. Well, but uh, like speaking of that specifically, um, I I liked how like Saburo was was who's the third son was uniquely Japanese in the way that he was cast out. Like, Cordelia is cast out because, like, her two, like, sisters are like, I love you as much as the sun and the moon. And she's like, you're a good dad. Um, (laughs) Whereas, like, uh, uh, Saburo is like, I am being rude to you because I'm kind of speaking truth to power. Like, you had a fun story about, like, you can't break three arrows, but look, I can break three arrows. Like, eventually we're all going to fight each other because we're bad brothers. Um, and, it, like, he, he's being rude in kind of a uniquely Japanese way. Um, and I, ju- I just found it very interesting that that's, like, that is the a good I, example of the sort of, like, you know, rebooting the bard in a different context to be like, well, we can't really have it. It's just, like, these sisters are talking sweetly and this one is, like, going to talk plainly. It's more like, I have to be rude in a culturally specific way to make it a relevant reaction. That's really that's really interesting because I actually feel like that's almost a direct translation hmm. of what the daughters do in the original text. Like, like the way that it goes down in the original story... I feel does have a lot of that same like refusal of courtesy almost that gets Saburo um, slammed in Ron. It's like this expectation that you would be kind of over the top. Um, like fawning. Yeah. And then somebody's refusal to play by the by the rules of etiquette. Right. Like, I, yeah, I don't disagree. But it's more like the nice, like... I think I you're getting at the fact I'm... that he used specifically these arrows. Um, it's, it's not I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that that feels like something that would be resonant for a Japanese storyteller. Right. Right, and like I, I'm, I'm very glad that you guys both assigned, uh, not only Western but also randomly high school kid uh, <laughs> version like homeworks because oh, this is like totally. We're going to talk about how appropriate a lot of his stories are for high schoolers. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but like this is like a total opposite situation where we're like, the time period is not dissimilar, but we're moving from England to Japan, and there's a fair amount of similarities between England and Japan, all things considered. Well, okay. But like, all right. So this is where I'm going to put my footnote in about the story, the origin of the story of Lear, um, which is that it originates in one of my favorite medieval chronicles, William of Malmesbury. This is not shade, but Marin has a favorite medieval chronicler, which means there are other medieval chroniclers that are not her favorite. Continue. Anywho. So just saying, this dude, like, potentially made all this stuff up, like, whole cloth, and was just like, this sounds like a cool story about a Romano-Britain king. I'm going to write it. And um, that's where Shakespeare got it from, um, is, or at least was passed down from this medieval chronicler. Um, so it's interesting because it's a medieval chronicler 
or writing towards like ancient Britain. Well, and Jeffrey was twelve hundreds. Uh, ten hundreds. Ten to eleven hundreds. Writing about the six hundreds, picked up by a guy in the sixteen hundreds, picked up by a Japanese guy in the nineteen hundreds. Yeah. Um, so and it's. Well, like, some parts of it have been corroborated by, like, say, Bede and stuff. But, like, some of it, he was just like, I'm going to write these cool stories about the history of British kings. So he did. And that's where the Lear legend comes from. So this may be pedantic of me. <laughs> but that's a really cool story that you were very excited to tell and I'm glad that you did but what was it that Pete was talking about that kind of well we were talking about how you translate it and like the layers of translation Mm -hmm. so Martin's sake is it's like Shakespeare himself is translating an older story which we'll also well, talk about he did when that, we talk about Macbeth. I was going to say, he stole all of his stuff. Basically. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about Ray Palinchev when we talk about Macbeth. Actually, you were saying, you were saying <laughs> more that uh, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You slash Timmy the Shrew might be one of his only truly original works. Yeah, yeah. Um, because even, I mean, his comedies are probably the only ones that do have original stories. But um, even some of them have other inspirations. Well, unless we have anything to talk about, Ron, I feel like that's a good segue to 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, my only my only last footnote would be something that I think we're going to be talking about for every single one of these stories, and that's just that, you know, Ron kind of illustrates how well you can translate his Shakespeare's work to any time, any place, because at, at the end of the day, the themes that he is working with are pretty universal or at least work in every language like i feel like it is not an uncommon feeling for parents to be afraid that at some point they will be obsolete to their children uh all right so um that's a good segue then to talk about 10 things i hate about you martha's favorite movie from the 90s (laughs) favorite movie from the 90s yeah marin's favorite movie from the 90s a movie that I had not seen in like twenty—that's not sure, probably fifteen years. Forgot I—I had not seen this since before Dark Knight, so like before Heath Ledger died. Uh, one of my now favorite movie of the nineties, <laughs> and, and it is one that like among that genre of rom coms, and particularly like teen rom coms of the late nineties, early aughts, that holds up so well. I was it really does. Happily surprised at how well it held up, and also it led to like a two-day and ongoing me listening to a bunch of '90s music. Like, you got your Smashing Pumpkins, you got your Linus Morissette. I just discovered Liz Fair because I'm an idiot who was hiding <laughs> under a rock for thirty years. Pete and I constantly have this conversation about important '90s pop culture that he missed out on. So I'm always happy when he takes the deep dive into the '90s. Um, so yeah, but yeah, so. Explain the 10 things I hate about you for the 10-year-olds listening. So, to premise of 10 things I hate about you is Shakespeare's comedy, The Taming of the Shrew, set in suburban Seattle in 1999 um, and featuring a young man who enters a high school and has a crush on a girl, Bianca. Um, but Bianca's father has set the rule that Bianca cannot date if her sister doesn't and her sister has no interest in dating anyone. 
So he who, bribes. Who is that wee baby who plays that young man? Oh, it's a baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Because there are so many great baby actors. <laughs> Let's also have our moment about Davy, baby David Krumholtz from Numbers. David Krumholtz looks like he's 30. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's the only guy who looks like he's in high school. <laughs> to be okay, fair, I so think every he time... up and David Krumholtz was only 20. Um, Real fast side note about Krumholtz. Every time I watch this movie, I think that he is Oscar Isaac. Oh, that's yes. fair. Yes. He does look very much like Oscar Isaac. I have to look him up every single time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so plot ensues of Heath Ledger being paid to take out Bianca's sister, Catherine. Um, and Played by Julia Stiles. So that, Julia Stiles, the so that Cameron can date her younger sister, Bianca. Uh, and hijinks ensue. It's a comedy. They all get married at the end. Well, except okay. For, except for they don't. Or it's a go to prom. <laughs> right, Which, yeah. okay, like, let's talk about how that's a same, good analogy. Same thing. Going to, going to prom instead of getting married. <laughs> um, right, so we all definitely love this movie. Let's segue past that into the... <laughs> what do we want to talk about this movie in terms of rebooting the Bard? Well, I mean, in, in terms of our first question about, like, why this story is endearing, I mean, I think that resetting this in such a modern context proves how enduring the story of oh i like i don't want to say forbidden love but like working towards love and also gender roles like there's a lot going on here about like julia styles feminism competing with all the various cliques of dudes at her school, <laughs> which are so well laid out in the she opening so scene. She is so 90s feminist in a great way. I um, mean, I just love that monologue she has about, like, but can we read Sylvia, Sylvia Plath, Plath or Charlotte yeah. Bronte? And I love that moment where her teacher just looks at her and is like, well, tell me about how you're oppressed, suburban white girl. Speaking uh, of, I want to teach at this school where the teachers can just be like, you're annoying me. Go to the principal's office. Like, oh, wouldn't that be what? wonderful? <laughs> uh, so, I stand for Taming of the Shrew. Really? I always have. Yes. Really? I, that I, love, I love it. I problematic AF play. Uh, well, but see, that's part of why. Because, look, I, I took a class in college that was a Shakespeare class where we took a comedy, a tragedy, and a history and watched like four adaptations of each one. That was where I first watched Ron because we did a deep dive on King Lear that you would have loved, Pete. Um, but the comedy that we read was Taming of the Shrew. And I ended up writing a like 12-page defense of this play. And part of why was because I got so mad at everybody who simply dismissed it out of hand as being misogynistic and sexist garbage. I am not saying there are not issues with this play, but I am saying that to dismiss it for that is to miss how much fun it is. And also to miss how in the end, I do believe that Catherine in the original text, just like Julia Stiles in 10 Things I Hate About You, finds a place where she gets to continue to be herself while also being happy with that because she's not happy at the beginning of the movie and I don't think it's a play or, or sorry at the beginning of the play and I don't think it's a also play about movie. her be yeah um, but more importantly I don't think it's a play about her becoming happy because a dude shows her how to do it I think that I mean the original play 
is problematic because it was being written in a context where women were treated more like property. So you do have to kind of take that into consideration. Right. Um, but it's also her learning like how how to be herself while also to fit within the confines of society and like how that doesn't diminish her in order to do that. A full disclosure on this one, I've never read Taming of the Shrew. Um, literally my only experience with it is reading the wiki synopsis, reading in, when I was a kid, like a Shakespeare plots, but not in Shakespeare language, kind of like anthology book, and 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, I highly recommend watching the Elizabeth Taylor version. Twist my arm on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say... I think I watched the Elizabeth Taylor version when I was in high school. And I also, the BBC circa 2006 did a, my arm on that one. Did a bunch of versions of Shakespeare plays called, one of which I almost assigned for this instead of 10 Things I Hate About You. But they did, it was a series called Shakespeare Retold, um, which I've told you multiple oh, times about the James McAvoy Macbeth. Never mind, I thought you were going to like the Hollow Crown thing. Oh, no, no. But I've told you multiple times about the James McAvoy Macbeth that you need to see and will love. But um, they did do a version of Taming the Shrew for that, which I enjoyed, which I believe featured Rufus Sewell. Mm. Um, and I want to say Shirley Henderson, but I could be wrong. Well, anyway. anyway. But, uh, so this is to say, like, my, my contact with the original play is also rather minimal. So I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, and I also think the ori- just this is the last I'll talk about the original text because we really are talking about these adaptations. Um, but I also think it's a really good study in both what femininity meant during that time period mm-hmm. and how like how women could subvert that while also remaining part of society because i think that's important to keep in mind like catherine was never going to be in a position where she could just sort of throw off the shackles of um, what being a woman meant right. but i do think that taming of the shrew shows how she kind of figures out how she fits within that definition. And the, the, again, obviously, well, and I think the one definition... thing that 10 Things I Hate About You does well, which I'm assuming also Team in the Shrew does well, is it makes it not about Catherine subsuming herself, but it makes it about her being happy enough with herself such that she can have functional relationships. Yes. That's kind of the big argument about Taming of the Shrew is whether Catherine has to, like, become a different person at the end of the play. And I really don't think she does. I think she's simply redefining what it means to be herself so that she can be happy. The the change that she undergoes isn't a now I am changed because this man has changed me so much as now I have changed because, like, that makes me a better person. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still change facilitated by a man because it's a romantic comedy. Right. Um, but it's it's not, to me, necessarily about her uh, relationship. I don't know. The, I mean, Catherine isn't functional in society at the beginning of the play. Right. Like, like she's not in 10 Things I Hate About You. Right. Yeah, no one wants to be around her. No one wants to be her friend. 
Her sister wants nothing to do with the, her. The amazing Allison Janney tells her as much, and my God, I did God, not know. I did so not remember she was good. in it. Uh, possibly best line of that movie. His testicle retrieval operation went well, by the way. Um, so I, I would say that, like, A, I'm very glad that somebody assigned this as a homework. Also, this was the literal canonical example of this topic as a homework, as we were all trying to figure out, like, <laughs> well, what what are the parameters of this topic? Can we assign a modern day but Shakespeare language adaptation? No, we want to do a Ten Things I Hate About You version. So it is yes. the canonical example of well, Shakespeare thing... in modern language and okay. in modern day. Um, but also, I'm very glad this was assigned because I think it's a perfect example of taking Shakespeare's broad stroke stories and putting it into a modern day setting because you can't do the actual beat-for-beat, beat, like, plot of, of Taming of the Shrew in a modern-day setting, or else, like, everyone, for good reason, would be like, this is a sexist, horrible film. Um, so, you, you, like, you adapt it, you take the broad strokes, and then you, like, make it a 90s teen rom-com, and it works really well. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I also, in this, found out that the same screenwriters who did 10 Things I Hate About You in 2006 did She's the Man, which was the other thing I was debating assigning. Um, I and love I think, that movie so much. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yes. Okay. Twelfth Night with Amanda Bynes and a very young, beautiful Channing Tatum. I guess Twelfth Night only because I know Twelfth Night has a lot of cross-dressing. So She's the Man sounds like it would make sense. some point I'm going to have to force you to watch She's the Man. It's delightful. Amanda it really Bynes, is. Amanda Bynes puts it in a very specific time and place <laughs> in our culture. Yeah, and I think that one that thing both of these movies do well is that they do do a good job of saying okay these are what these characters will be doing in 1999 or 2006 and I think that what makes Julia's style's rendition of Catherine so resonate is that like yes like Kate of Taming the Shrew would be living in Seattle and going to record stores and going to... Being a riot girl. Being a riot girl and going to riot girl clubs and you know reading Sylvia Plath and going to Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> like I would have been crushing on her very hard back then. <laughs> you say um, that like you're not crushing on her really hard right now. No, yeah, no, like you're totally like... Definitely true. Um, but one of the things that I appreciate, one of the many millions of things that I appreciate about this movie is that it also gets across, I don't know, this is a movie, this is one of those adaptations where I feel like it helps clarify the original text as well as being a really good expansion on it. Mm-hmm. Because I think um, one of the things that this movie does really well is it also shows how like, Kat is not just not, it's it's not just that she doesn't conform to society, but also that society as it is has mistreated her. Sure. And a lot of how she feels is a reaction to how, like, how Joey um, mistreats her. And, you know, how that becomes almost a defense mechanism for her, and she has to figure out the parts of society that are not actually out to hurt her in order to kind of recover from that. Totally. And, and going even beyond that, it's like, we, 
joke about like Julia Stiles being the militant 1999 feminist of like why are we reading uh, uh, Hemingway when we could be reading Sylvia Plath but also like that's a good joke but also that's a good point um, the teacher has a good point too yeah no he has a great point like, <laughs> shut, shut that white girl down but like um, like she's not wrong in her critique and that's kind of like a useful thing to say I mean I think Though the, the bigger point is that she has non-existent relationships with her father and her sister and has felt abandoned by both her mother and then also... Uh, also definitely experienced trauma. Definitely experienced trauma and, like, possibly sexual assault uh, from her ex-boyfriend and that, like, that has created this wall of toxicity wherein she basically has one friend. So I, I think it's more less about her needing to change her belief in things and more learning how to be a caring being that has functional relationships with the people in her life. Like, I remember one thing that really sticks out to me is, and one thing that I think I understand more as I age, like the fact that she doesn't tell her younger sister that this dude she's seeing or crushing on, like, hey... I have all this history with him and it's bad history and I didn't want you to be like biased based on my history but like also this dude treated me horribly and I think as I grow older I understand more like oh you wanted to give your little sister a clean slate and you wanted to but also, like, comes from the fact that she doesn't really have a relationship with her sister. Which is actually a really interesting parallel to Ron, because in The Taming of the Shrew, we don't really get a history of Kat and Bianca's relationship. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, no, we don't... Basically because it's, it's women. A, well, it, I mean, it's... There aren't a whole... There honestly aren't a whole lot of Shakespeare plays that spend a lot of time talking about what happened to the characters before the events of the plays. The Tempest like, is it's kind usually... of the only one I can think of, and that's because The Tempest is literally part of the plot. Well, and Macbeth, because the war stuff doesn't that... happen like on stage in the text of the play. Eh, but it's, it's simultaneous history rather than, like, you know, five years ago history. Right. So what we have, what we have in Ten Things I Hate About You, is an attempt to give Cat and also the rest of her family a history that makes her behavior make more sense in context, which is all stuff that we can maybe infer in Taming of the Shrew, but is never addressed. Probably because Shakespeare decided it wasn't that important to, like, the main story that he was telling. But it is interesting to think about. Martha, you just mentioned the. Uh, that in Macbeth, there was a lot of backstory that I was like, it was too soon to be backstory. That seems like a good and definitely not at all forced segue into our third homework by you. Um, as I descended, a YA privileged AF lesbian high school Macbeth adaptation. Tell us more. You've ruined my intro line. I, I know, I, I, took, I took it from you. <laughs> Let us talk about Macbeth, but with ghosts and also lesbians. So, as I descended, 
is a YA novel written by Robin Talley. It was published in 2016. Uh, it is basically M Macbeth, only substitute all of the characters for high schoolers. And instead of a instead of the crown to a kingdom, they are all fighting over a very prestigious scholarship award. Um, all of the main characters have a first initial that matches their Shakespearean counterpart. Which is very useful. So, in the Macbeth role, yes, it was incredibly useful, actually. <laughs> like, uh, two pages in, I left a note, I'm like, is this person this or this? And then a page later, I'm like, their names match. Got it. Great. Well, and at some point, I had to look up what happened to Banquo, because I got very concerned yeah. about my, what was going to happen. My, my thing was more with uh, uh, Felicia, because I'm like, what is Banquo's kid's name? Because it's a stupid name, but I don't remember what it starts with. Oh, it's Fleans? Yeah, that's a stupid name. And Honey, also Fleans. Fleans, right, stupid name. You know what? Shakespeare was doing some pandering to the Stuarts. Like, come on, man. You had to do something. Continue. Anyway. The point is, you have Maria and her girlfriend, Lily, uh, who conspire to um, get Maria the prestigious Kingsley Cawdor Prize, which is a, basically a full-ride scholarship to the school of her choice. Playing the role of Duncan is Delilah, uh, the super popular it girl. Uh, the book opens with a seance in which Maria invites a whole bunch of ghosts into her life that then help sort of contrive to help manipulate her for their own ends uh, while she thinks that she is um, setting Delilah up to lose the scholarship prize. Things quickly spiral out of control. Lots of people die. Well, not lots of people. It's, Three people die. It's Macbeth. People die. Right. Um, but yeah, it's basically a pretty straightforward Macbeth adaptation. And I'm, I'm so curious... Knowing that you two are such huge fans of Macbeth, what you thought of this book? Uh, I'll start. I, as the resident grump for YA novels, <laughs> uh, um, I like this quite a lot. Uh, I liked... Yes! I mean, I love Macbeth. I, put, <laughs> yeah. I was going to put money on you liking this book. I was about halfway Good. through and I was like, yes, I got him. Well, like... <laughs> Like, you had me at Macbeth, and then you continued to have me at, like, ghost story? Um, and, it, like, once I got past my initial, like, I have many issues with this book. You should see my annotations on the Kindle version of this book. It's basically <laughs> like, Jesus, I, I hate the way YA books are written, and this person needs an editor, and, like, you can't change third-person perspective in midstream, but they do all the time, because it's a YA book. Um... All the quibbles aside, it's Macbeth plus ghosts plus, like, queer high school kids. So it's like, yeah, all right, this is great. Um, I really like the ghost angle because it's a good subversion, which kept me on my toes for the entirety of the book, where I was like, I know where we're going here because it's Macbeth. And, like, I like that the ghosts are the witches, but they're also way more active than the witches ever were. So they were a good curveball where I was like, well, are we just going to be expelling Delilah? Or is she just going to... Spoiler, Delilah's Duncan. Um, like, are we just going to... Oh, did you? Okay, great. Um, I'll cut that. Uh, like, are no, we that's just... okay. I just, I said in the role of Duncan, we have Delilah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, like, are, like, are we going to expel Delilah? Are we going to get her just 
busted off the Cador list um, because of drugs? Are we going to murder her with knives? Like, what are we doing here? Um, so, it, like, the, the ghost angle kept me on my feet the whole time. And also, kind of, but in only a good way, reminded me of some later William Gibson books where he brings in some um, voodoo magic. <laughs> like, there's a character who, like, uh, you know, gets strength from the Orishas and the uh, the Elwa. Uh, and this kind of reminded me of this with um, La La Llorona. Um, La Llorona? Yeah, there we go. Uh, Gir- we, we think... None of us. Isn't it La Yorona? Isn't it Yorona? Because it's a double L. LL might be a J sound based on my knowledge that the Geranos from Latin America were spelled with an LL, I think. Um, but I enjoyed this a lot. Um, oh, apparently it just depends on the type of Spanish you are speaking. Hmm. Apparently in Mexican different Spanish. dialects either happen. My understanding of the story i i know a little bit about the lie I, I believe it's la llorona um well and i was you'll appreciate this martha we'll, i was we'll saying get all of this out but keep going well i was just saying as i was wikipediaing this i was like oh so it's basically the first episode of supernatural cool yeah, I just started rewatching season one of Supernatural, and I'd forgotten that literally the first episode was a woman in white story, and it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> there, there's a lot of very specific things that I kind of want to talk about this, especially in relation to the other two things we've assigned, but I want to give Marn her due. I was going to say, first, Marn, please tell me, did I do good? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not... I did not. No. It did not give me the level of <laughs> anger that the last one you assigned did. No, it didn't give me anger at all. I, it it was not a like, I love this, but it I certainly <laughs> did not dislike it. It was somewhere in between. Uh, I, in some ways, I, I what's that? Oh, sorry. Oh, I was, I was just saying, in some say. ways, and I brought this up with Pete. In some ways, it was almost too straightforward and adaptation. I I wanted it to do a little more innovative things because. After the first three chapters, it was like, oh, you're so-and-so, you're so-and-so, you're so-and-so, you're so-and-so. And you you told me that after we watched Ron. So you yeah. were, like, coming off of a immediate, like, a pretty straight adaptation. Into well, this. and maybe it's just because, like, Ron so culturally and visually is different than Lear. Mm. And also probably because I am less familiar with Lear. Mm. Uh, but... We were both saying real hard for Macbeth, so, like... I mean, I've just read it and, uh, and seen it enough times. But, I mean, it, I, I don't want that to sound like I am in any way hating on this book. I think it was a very intriguing premise, and I think that the writing was good. I think for me, like, yes, it, it was always pretty clear where the specific characters were going to end up based on the fact that their roles in the play are so clearly telegraphed. Mm-hmm. What was interesting for me was getting there because I did not always, I could not always tell how we were going to end at the place that we, that I knew we were going to. Yes. Also, I tend to, I tend to be fond, I tend to like Macbeth adaptations, the weirder that they are. Like, I really like it when people lean super heavily into the supernatural overtones or like the, um, did you see that uh, Patrick you know, just Stewart the... Macbeth where he's in, like, a Soviet bunker and, like, weird-ass nurses are the witches? 
I have not. But one of the things that I appreciated about um, the Michael Fassbender version that we watched for last episode yeah, was witches. utilizing was utilizing the witches as hallucinations. Like I love stuff like that. So this book was like, let's just lean one hundred percent into the total. I don't want to. I keep wanting to use the word insanity, but it, that's wrong and insensitive. But like the total emotional breakdown weirdness yeah and just like the like the ghosts are not a metaphor for anything it's just straight up haunted there i feel like there's a version of this book where the ghosts are all in maria's head and that would be a and worse I was, version yeah i, I liked really that like, the ghosts were actually there and I, yes. I liked that twist at the end where they were like we didn't make you do anything you chose yeah. to do that yeah I think the book would have been weaker for, like, either A, the ghost didn't exist at all, or B, they had, like, some type of physical manifestation. Yeah, but I, I loved that we got confirmation from other characters that, like, nope, super haunted, ghosts are real, they're here to mess us up, but also, the only reason they could do any of this is because of your pride and desires, like, like, I thought there was a good balance there between Maria's internal, Maria and Lily's, like, actual behavior, and then also ghosts. You have agency, but also ghosts are affecting you. Yes. Um, I have a different broad question I want to say, but it's more broad for all three, so I do want to address this high school-specific situation because it doesn't include Ron. Um, Marin. I think that high school adaptions of Shakespeare work so well because the stakes of high school feel so high at the time. I feel like, and I think there's a grain of truth in it. I think there also might just be a cultural narrative around high schoolers feeling like this is such a seminal point in their lives. And, I mean, I think that extends beyond just setting Shakespearean adaptions in high school. But I think that one reason, like, these narratives that have such, like, sweeping, I mean, like, the the analogy of marriage and prom, I think, works so well. Mm -hmm. Because in the moment, prom feels, at least for many high schoolers, prom feels like such a, an important moment in their lives. So I think that that, like the journey of high school feels so important and therefore setting those themes within high school works well. Well, and I do think it is, I mean, I work with teenagers and I think it's absolutely true that um, they consider, and I mean, I remember this from when I was a teen, like there's stuff like your, your social life in high school, like everything feels like the beginning or the end of the world. Yeah. It was it was not that much of a stretch for me to believe that Maria would get so desperate to win this scholarship that she would go to the ex- to the lengths that she does. Like how how often do we hear stories about teenagers that commit suicide for you know a lot of reasons but frequently like, like social or academic pressures, um, like we we as like, we get as people, brought up and add to that. 
we as people far removed to be like would say for stupid reasons but like when you're 17 it is not a stupid reason it is the most the most reason well and again as somebody who works very closely with teenagers everything gets treated like the most important thing right like who you are dating who you are friends with like even even above and beyond just the I have to be friends with the popular person because like that is neither here nor there or whatever, but just like worrying that your friends like you because you said something dumb the other day. Like everything feel like everything gets felt so much harder. There, there were a few Every- great lines and ten things I hate about you that to me like perfectly encapsulated performative high school where it's like you know like we were all in high school there's that idea of like we're trying on different roles and we're all being very performative in the way that we do things um jgl early on said like i pine i weep i something something it's an actual line from the play i pine i burn i perish and i was certain that like i'm like that is one thousand percent definitely actual shakespeare uh, but also, in that specific scene, it just felt like good performative high school, where you're like, I don't know, I'm going to be, like, over the top about everything one day, and, like, the next day, maybe I'll be like Heath Ledger and be like, oh, I'm too cool for stuff, and I'm going to drill a hole in the textbook, hey, whatever. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think there's something to be said with, like, in high school, your brain is still developing, and you are still exploring who you are. And again, I think those translate. I think that journey translates really well to a lot of the themes of Shakespeare. I mean, I think that's one reason she's the man works so incredibly well because, as it is a lot about cross-dressing and mistaken identities and navigating who you are and where you fit in, I think that speaks very powerfully to teenagers just as much as it did in Shakespeare's day to adults. Well, and a lot of the comedy, a lot of the um, plots of his comedies feel like a scheme that a teenager would come up with. Like, Twelfth Night feels like something an 18-year-old sat down and said, this sounds like a good idea. Yes, in fact, the only exposure I've had to Twelfth Night is when I saw it performed by high school students while I myself was in high school. So, <laughs> I I have a strong high school bias for Twelfth Night. Um yeah, I mean, I I read Twelfth Night. I have a vivid memory. So I actually lived in England in middle school, and I read it in seventh grade. And then we went and saw the production at the Globe at the time. Um, a guaranteed very different version than what I saw in high school. Well, what was unique about it, and actually, um, oh, my God, what's his name from Bridge of Spies? I'm pretty sure it was in it. Michael, Mark Rylance. No! Yeah, because Mark Rylance, because I found an interview of him doing this later. But the, the, the thing the that British was... The Tom Hanks. Yes. But uh, but the thing that's that was distinctive about it is they actually had an all-male cast, and they actually did the cross-dressing. And okay, tried... can I tell you something? Can I tell you something wild? Yeah. That cast toured in the U.S. and I saw them at the old at the uh, Navy Pier Shakespeare Theater when I was in like when I was like a freshman. Yeah, because this would have been circa like two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah. Yeah, high, yeah, school, high freshman. school freshman. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I think I saw it in the Globe of Spring two thousand two. Because you're one year younger than me, and you're two years younger. Yeah, because I would have so. been in seventh grade. 
And so you would win a ninth. Oh grade. wow, that's wild. All right, so so one thing that all of these adaptations had was like excisions of fairly major plot points, I think. Actually, I don't know this about Taming of the Shrew, but I know this for sure about both the Lear and the Macbeth adaptations. Uh, where they excise like fairly major plot points in um, Lear, they excise the Edgar Edmund nonsense in um, which I'm not complaining about. In Macbeth, they excise the whole like storming of that other castle and killing all the women and children in it, and also a lot of other plot points. Um, yeah, in Taming of the Shrew, the, like the whole middle of it. I mean, so in the in the play. Catherine and the dude get married in like the middle of the play. And isn't there and a then bit there's... where like he then like gaslights her? Uh, well, no, this he is just... the this is the problematic part of the play. Um, he brings her to his like manor house and gaslights the, it, her. The... <sighs> Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Wiki. You look, steered me right. Look, anyway, there's a whole middle section that is not important to 10 Things I Hate About You because once they get together, everything is fine. So, like, TLDR, in all three of these adaptations, they excised fairly major plot points to tell a more specific story. Um, and I'm, I'm, like, we've all been talking so far tonight about how the Bard's stories rebooted are so, like, timeless. But that's only true when you, like, cut out fairly large sections of it. Uh, so I'm just kind of, like, throwing that out there as a, a volley well, to, I think to that, volley back at me. I think that any Shakespeare play, regardless of whether you're changing the setting, has to be excised in some way. Like, I remember... True, but, like, I, I'm not talking, like, excising, like, certain lines versus other lines. Like, this is, like, serious major plot points being excised. Like, it's not just, like, we're condensing this part of that part. It's, like, Edgar and Edmund are done. Have the you seen the Mel Gibson Hamlet? No, but also I don't want to because Mel Gibson. Um, well, except that that's not a thing that's specific to Shakespeare. I mean, when you're yes. adapting any... When you're adapting anything from one medium to another, I think you have to decide what we, is you, the core of the story I want to tell. You literally and just then, assigned Girl with Dragon Tattoo, and both the Fincher and the Swedish version did not have serious excisions. And that's a terrible example, and I'm sorry for putting it on the spot, because I realize I'm kind of trolling by well, saying that. Yeah, also, I mean, I think... No, it, it's also a completely different thing like what we are looking at are stories that are not like specifically are not direct adaptations of the Shakespeare plays themselves they're different versions of like his, the core of his story but I think that what you get is an author deciding what is the story I want to tell and what in the original is in service to the story I want to tell rather than the story that Shakespeare was telling. Sure. So things get cut based on, not based on, um, like, any kind of, or rather, things get cut to make the story that the that the adapter is creating mm -hmm. to make that story clearer. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I think what you're getting at is that the adapters are making specific choices of what to excise and what to keep. And that those choices are grounded of their time. Like, for example, the fact that they're cho not choosing to include that second act of Taming of the Shrew, uh, because that would probably not read well to audiences in 1999. Right, yeah, they got married, and then Heath Ledger gaslit her until she submitted to him. Would not be a good take. Yeah, you're so no longer allowed... You're no longer allowed to use that word, Pete, until you actually read Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> I fully respect that because I acknowledge that I have not read Taming of the Shrew. Um, but yeah, what I, th what I think you're getting at is that these creators chose to reconstruct these stories in specific ways that reflect the context that they're in. So Kurosawa chose to focus on the direct father-son relationship, so he excised the whole plot about Gloucester and his sons. So Kurosawa chose, instead of having that secondary example, well, or actually, in Shakespeare's play, the example of father-son relationships, mm -hmm. because in Lear's father-daughter relationships. Right. Yeah. Um, so he chose to have that contrast with Edmund and Edgar, and Kurosawa decided that's not what I'm focusing on. Uh, maybe in part because he did change the gender and he is focusing more on father-son relationships so he doesn't need those extraneous ones. Well, and, but... And, like, it might just be that, like, the three specific things we chose, I was always, like, less intrigued by Edgar Edmund than any other part of Lear. I was always least intrigued by the whole, like, I guess halfway through Macbeth he goes and invades another person's castle and kills his wife and children. Like... My is that Macduff? Chicks, I think it's whatever. Macduff. I think it is Macduff. Um, and that's part of Macduff's motivation. Right. Never met, never read uh, Tammy the Shrew, so I found a good, strong example there. But, like, these adaptations all randomly happen to choose to excise the thing that I cared least about. Well, that probably speaks well of their creative decisions. Maybe that. And also just to, like, Shakespeare is great, but also, like, it has parts where people are like, this is definitely the weakest part. We can cut it. Yeah, I mean, I think... Any Shakespearean play has its B-plot. Um, and, it, I mean, it's not like the stories that we looked at don't have their own B-plots. I just think it's important to remember that what we looked at, and we did this on purpose, was not 100% um, faithful adaptations of Shakespeare, but rather stories that use Shakespeare as an inspiration. So they're not, they're by definition not going to be an exact translation of his stories, the authors are going to use what they want, and they're going to add their own, um, their own subplots and their own characters, um, you know, in service of the story that they want to tell. Yeah, and I think so. I don't know. I feel like it's, I feel like it's less a matter of the context they're writing them in, and more just the fact that these are different authors borrowing. A story idea. Shakespeare gave them a very big canvas to play with, and they were like, we want to play in this specific zone of that canvas. Right. Right. Well, and like you said, Pete, I don't think it's a coincidence that they access the stuff that you didn't care about. Because I don't care about the B plots. Well, and also that like they're not picking the things that are most relevant. Like, for example, right. if maybe they were adapting it to a different time and place... Sure, and Lear, the part of these two feuding brothers yeah, of but Edgar and Edmund would be the most relevant, but it's not. 
that, oddly enough, is all the time we have for this week, although we could keep talking about this for quite a lot longer. Um, Marin, if you want people to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter with a Shakespearean handle, which is a underscore star underscore danced. What play is that related to? That would be Much Ado About Nothing. Mm, much Ado About Puffins. Uh, <laughs> cool. Martha, uh, where do you want people to find you on the internet? You can find me at all the places at Magical Martha. And what Shakespeare reference is that? It's not. Bad joke. It is a reference. <laughs> it is a reference to the magnum opus. Yes. Everyone loves magical Trevor. Yes, because the gifts that he does are ever so clever. The tricks the that he tricks does. The tricks that he does are ever so clever. You pedant. Where is he now? Disappearing like a cow. Martha is giving. Uh, Martin is giving me a serious face because she is one year younger than me and apparently doesn't understand Ebom's world. Sure don't. I have had this. I have had the same screen name for 17 years. All right. Well, you can find me at Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm talking politics, pop culture, and the World Cup for the next month or so. You can find the show on Twitter at D-Y-D-Y-H podcast, and you can find us at our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. We're on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework? And our email is show at homeworkpodcast.com. Please write in, give us your feedback, uh, offer us suggestions of homework assignments, topics, or even if you just want to be a guest. Also, as always, one of your homework assignments for this week is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere else you might be listening to this. Uh, that's how we are able to advance up the algorithmic metrics. Not quite sure how any of it works. Uh, but that's how it allows more people to find out about the show. Speaking of, please tell your friends about the show. That's another way that you can get more people to find out about the show. Next week, we are entering the sort of end of June, sort of definitely into the summertime uh, feel. So we're going to be talking about zombies. That's right, zombies in pop culture. That is our assignment, or that is our topic for next week. Martha is assigning the book Freed by Mira Grant. I am assigning the 2016 movie The Girl with All the Gifts. Uh, I'm told that there's also a book about this. Apparently it's fantastic. I'm looking at the movie. We'll be joined by my friend Austin, who is out on summer break. Uh, she is assigning Warm Bodies, the 2013 drama slash romance about zombies. All right, that's all we have for this episode. Talk to you in two weeks. Until then, make sure you do your homework and class dismissed.